The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, and 24-7 support. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code GUARDIAN to get 10% off. Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, it's BT1 Sky Nil as the telecoms giant splashes the cash on Champions League football. Plus, will Ipso really become reality after the driving forces behind the new press regulator say it will be up and running by the start of next year? And it's all the BBC's fault, again, after Home Secretary Theresa May blames BBC Online for the troubles of local newspapers. And we return to Rebecca Nicholson's TV lair and find out why she's been watching Harry Hill's TV Burt from 2006. Ah, the joy of the long tail. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined this week by Steve Ackerman, who is Managing Director of Content Creation Company Something Else. Steve, hello. Hello. And in a slight change to the running order, Rebecca Nicholson, The Guardian's TV and radio editor, is joining us from the start. How exciting, Rebecca. How are you? I'm thoroughly excited. (laughs) Thank you very much. We can almost believe her, can't we, Steve? (laughs) Uh, And uh, joining us later uh, will be Emily Bell, all the way from New York. Uh, brackets, technology permitting uh, brackets. Uh, but first up, it's time to move straight on and football. And of course, this week we have BT's shock capture of the live TV rights to the UEFA Champions League. Rights previously held, you won't need reminding, by ITV and Sky. BT spent even more money on the European football than Real Madrid spent on Gareth Bale. Woohee! Media Talk's first football gag. Uh, it was nearly £900 million, in case you don't remember. And BT Chief Exec Gavin Patterson said the deal was giving sport back to the fans, who will, in return, give their debit card details back to the broadcaster. Um, BT broadband subscribers don't pay for their channel at the moment. They get some Premier League football for free. But, Steve, we uh, I don't expect that, uh, that freebie to last for much longer. No, it's interesting. He says giving sport back to the fans when there'll be a few free games a season, but nothing, obviously, compared to the fact that uh, ITV cover one game in every... Uh, round of the Champions League at the moment, but well, I mean, this what a is coup. this is a declaration of war. So this can only be the start of some really interesting things, and obviously, all eyes are going to be on the next Premier League round in terms of what's going to happen there, because uh, there's no doubt about it. For maybe the first time in living memory, B Sky B have been outmanoeuvred, and you know, if the rumours are to be believed, that they then tried to re-enter the sort of bidding process, um, you know, once they realised how high BT's bid was. I can't think of a time on rights where this has really happened before. I suppose the other thing that really stood out for me was was B Sky B um, getting out the message that well it doesn't matter because we're we're going to be investing money in drama and a few other things. And you think well that just isn't the same. That doesn't give you the exclusivity that that football gives you. There's fantastic drama in lots of other places, but there's not many other places to go to for football. But how bad do you think it is for Sky? Because they've still got the lion's share of the Premier League games, of course. So that's the kind of meat and drink for football fans every you know every weekend. And the Champions League is kind of almost like a. I mean, it's, it's the Premier European competition, but in one sense, you know, it's not it's not every single week like the Premier League is. So, I mean, do you see a lot of fans kind of cancelling Sky and going to BT, or or do you think Sky subscribers just say, oh well, I'll have to do do without Champions League? Or how many people are really going to stump up for both? 
I could see fans stumping up for both. I'm not sure you'll necessarily see people cancelling Sky in exchange for BT. It's not at that point yet. But I think the issue really is that is that this is the first shot across the bowels. Right. Uh, it's not necessarily, you know, this isn't the end game. This is the, this is the start of the game. And it's tough for ITV. ITV kind of got lost out the mix a bit with all the talk about Sky's share price, which went down 10% or whatever. But it's, it's really bad news for, for, for ITV because along with the kind of Simon Cow talent shows and the soaps, the Champions League football was like kind of one of those kind of three big temp pegs in their schedule and now one of those is gone so they've got a lot to fill well it's confirmation i think sim- you know in a similar way to the bbc have found that traditional broadcast is very difficult for them to compete in terms of the money stakes when you look at the cash war chest that bt have it is absolutely staggering i mean they have a l- they're sitting on a lot of money and rebecca as steve said there sky said they're going to put more money in comedy and entertainment and whatever and, and new drama but some of their shows get a bit of critical acclaim but they don't they don't exactly pull in the viewers by the truckload do they no, they don't, but I think they are doing interesting things in terms of comedy especially. They're throwing a lot of money at it and it seems to be that they can give comedians free reign to do what they're interested in. So a good example with Julia Davis's Hunderby, which I can't imagine would have been made by anyone else, got, I think it was eight episodes on Sky Atlantic and was a great original comedy. And I don't think that would have made it through the kind of the process of, uh, you know, rewrites and edits and the endless sort of commissioning process that happens now. So more Julia Davis comedies in exchange for the football stuff, please. <laughs> I think the, in, the, the interesting thing with Sky is when you think a few years back, really the, the, the sort of pr- proposition was buy Sky for movies and for sport. And clearly the, the, the sort of movie exclusivity doesn't quite hold true the way it once did in terms of Love Film and Netflix and some of these other offerings. And now suddenly for the sport to... To, to be bitten into a little bit as well, you start to think, well, what, what does Sky, uh, as, a, as a broadcaster, what does it stand for? And Steve, just uh, one postscript to that was, I thought, interesting reaction from some people on the, on the Guardian website in the comments where people were sort of criticising BT for spending money on football and saying, oh, no, you should spend our money on improving the broadband. And what did you do with the government's um, you know, money to, to, to roll out broadband? It's, it's funny that people still perceive BT as a, a strictly a telecoms company and not really a media company or, or a broadcaster yet. Yeah, but that may work the other way, which is ultimately that is what this is all about. This is about a broadband play. This is about BT making sure that their share of the broadband market doesn't get eroded. And this is the strategy they've chosen to try and maintain that. But, you know, let's bear in mind, they've only been a broadcaster for now, what, three months, four, four months. It's, it's going to take a while until, they, until they're really seen within this space. OK, well, that's enough football for now. It's time to talk press. And what better time to do that than the occasion of the Society of Editors Conference in London this week? No shortage of things to talk about, but let's kick off with a topic uh, we frankly can't get enough of. That's right. It's the BBC. And uh, Home Secretary Theresa May was there and she was talking about the plight of local newspapers, saying they're having a very tough time at the minute. And one of the reasons she said they were having such a tough time was the BBC, in particular BBC Online, which she said was undermining local papers and told delegates that something had to be done. Government in BBC bash shock. Uh, Steve, what did you make of that? Do you think that was uh, fair or unfair? I think it's a slightly predictable comment. I mean, it seems to me there's a bit of a coordinated campaign coming out of government at the moment when you think about Grant Chapsy's comments uh, a few weeks ago as well. My own view on local papers is I wonder if it reflects our changing media ecology in terms of just how important are they going forward. There are other ways you can get local information now. I mean, in particular, I I find Twitter quite 
useful for that. You know, there are pick up any go to any area of the country. There'll be the local person who's tweeting about the the village fate and the and the events going on around around the area. You know, I don't see the BBC as having done that. And if you go on the BBC's website, I mean, it's it has regional uh, aspects to it. It certainly doesn't have local aspects to it. You know, she was citing her local paper in Maidenhead. Well, you know, there isn't a Maidenhead section of the BBC website. There is a Kent one, but that just mirrors the local radio station. So I think it's a bit of a, you know, non-starter from her, really. OK, well, I'm delighted to say I'm, we're now joined by Emily Bell, all the way down the line from New York. Emily, how are you? Hello, I'm, I'm all right, though. We've changed the clocks here. It's thrown, it's thrown everything off, John, but I'm delighted to be um, here. And it's very cold, very cold. I had no idea the clocks changed in America. I'm so naive. I thought that was just a Greenwich Mean Time thing. No, I know. I thought it was a quaint. Um, I thought it was a quaint tradition, uh, but that's obviously ruined my week in terms of diary uh, of, uh, arrangements. And presumably, because it's America, they don't just change by one hour. They really go for it and change by sort of thirteen, maybe, or something. Or, or maybe thirteen would be the same, wouldn't it? Uh, say eighteen. It's currently four in the morning. Is it <laughs> right? Or jolly good? It is, and it is here. Anyway, right. Move on. Before you joined us, we, we talked about uh, Home Secretary uh, Theresa May, who was at the uh, the conference, and she uh, blamed the BBC for undermining local papers. And, and the BBC, in its response, it was Fran uh, Fran Unsworth said that, uh, well, if you look at America, local papers local papers are having a hard time, and there's there's no BBC to blame there. Was that right? How how tough a time are local uh, newspapers having in the states? Yeah, I mean, every time a government minister opens their mouth and starts talking about issues, like you know, a little bit of me dies because the level of sort of ignorance and speculation and lack of evidential base for this is frankly sort of incredibly depressing you know it's got nothing to do with it I don't think I think the BBC stimulates the market for news and I think everybody benefits from that I think the collapse of local newspapers is to do with something entirely different which is a lack of relevance to their local audiences coupled by you know escalating costs at a time when People don't want to pay that much for information they can advertise, you know, through through other through other conduits. I still think there's a great opportunity in local news and information. But to say that the BBC is responsible for the collapse of the local press is just gross ignorance, frankly. Uh, but we covered off local papers. So I think the next thing we should ask you about, Emily, was, of course, press regulation. I know it's your favourite topic. Oh, yes. <laughs> Once more with feeling. Well, the good news is the successor to the Press Complaints Commission, which is, of course, the Independent Press Standards Organisation, or IPSO, will be up and running in the first few months of next year. That's according to Paul Vickers, who is chairman of the Industry Implementation Group. But the bad news, or maybe this is the good news, it depends on your point of view, is that all that wrangling about the Royal Charter, you'll remember, um, was actually an entire waste of time, said PCC chairman Lord Hunt. He said it was a sideshow, a cul-de-sac, and said there was no problem at all if the new regulator didn't have the remotest thing to do with the charter. Emily, what do you think? Is it wishful thinking to think we'll have a, a new regulator by the, by the start of next year? And what did you make of all this uh, recent dissing of the Royal Charter saying, you know, it's all irrelevant? It, it will be nice when it stops, as I say, a little bit like banging <laughs> your head against the wall. Um, so, you know, this has been such a protracted and difficult process. I mean, two things. First of all, the idea of the Royal Charter was very uncomfortable for cer- certain people anyway. You know, that, that, that that's something which I think, you know, the, the idea that it was a sideshow or a waste of time, etc. I'm not sure it was. I think that actually the British press needed to have, you know, a, a high-octane public debate about how it was going to organise itself and, and, and behave properly. Um, I have to say, from a, a distant perspective, when you get your head outside all of this, the whole thing seems vaguely absurd. You know, it feels to me as though you have pretty strong laws and a very restrictive regime in, a, in, in the UK anyway regarding the press. 
And then when you look at, if you like, the sort of the seeds of this, which are the hacking case and the Leveson inquiry, that was really about transgressions which were breaking the law. The, so the problem that sat alongside that was just how incredibly complicit uh, elements of the press were condoning poor behavior and not really giving adequate redress to to their readers, to, you know, to consumers and to people who feel, felt they'd actually been wronged by the press. And really it's that kind of how well is the redress for ordinary people going to work is actually the key question in all of this. Now, you know, I suppose you could say that actually, you know, that the, the, the structure and, and, and the relationship to the Royal Charter maybe kind of underwrote that slightly more sort of strongly, but I still feel a slight amount of kind of distaste and discomfort that anything around press regulation should derive, however, you know, tangentially from, from a parliamentary base. You mentioned there about the uh, the issue of redress and, and sort of the impact it has on ordinary, ordinary readers and people who have complaints, but all that is still to be decided despite this sort of endless debate, you know, the... the the actual, you know, how much prominence newspapers have got to give apologies, whether they've got to go on the front page, et cetera, et cetera. All that's still in the ether. You know, none of that, none of that is guaranteed uh, anyway whatsoever. No, that's right. And also, you know, I mean, I go, come back to the point that I often make about Leveson and about press regulation, et cetera, which is the speed at which the world of communication is changing and how actually kind of, you know, the, the, the mechanisms of redress and public debate are now pretty much in the hands of Silicon Valley and not in the hands of the British press anyway. You know, that, that's a, such a significant change, and it's happened in a very short period of time. And it's almost as though both the British press and British Parliament kind of plough on without really acknowledging that this fundamental shift has taken place, and, and how should any regulatory or redress system t- take account of it? You're regulating for something that no longer exists. You're regulating for a very powerful British press, and I'm not sure that that exists anymore. Well, I'm sticking with newspapers, Emily, but slightly bigger ones. Uh, News Corporation's latest uh, results were out this week, and they were, uh, well, profits were up, but uh, but revenues took a tumble, a, a big big slump, especially um, in Australia. Yeah, so this is interesting, because, of course, we've now had the separation, the great separation of News Corp into, um, I don't think I can use the words uh, that, that we used to describe their publishing company, but the, the not very good, the, 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 what was perceived to be the not very good company, which is the, the press company, um, which Rupert Murdoch is taking sort of close personal interest in, has separated at corporate level from the um, entertainment industry. As you say, we've seen a sort of a, a, a dive in profits, particularly in Australia. Um, I'd like to think that that was down to the, uh, singly down to the efforts of the marvellous Guardian Australia uh, operation, but I think there may be other systemic reasons for that <laughs> right. uh, in the Australian market. But of course, it's not such a problem because. They still have, I think I'm right in saying, uh, a cross-subsidy down there from their Australian pay TV business. So, you know, that was part of the uh, separation which didn't go with the uh, Fox and Entertainment Division. So actually, in a way, they do have, you know, they still have the money down there for Lachlan. Lachlan Murdoch is, is the son who is, is, is stationed in Australia and will run all of this. So they do have some sort of money to invest there. But I mean, you know, I think that kind of the Australian market is suffering in a way that the American and the, and the British market has suffered before it. And I suspect that these systemic declines are, are, are things that we're not going to see. You know, we're not necessarily going to see those revenues ever come back. Thank you very much to Emily, Steve and Rebecca. 
Right, next up, a new campaign called Rewind and Reframe launched this week and sees young women denouncing sexism and racism in many contemporary music videos. You know the ones. And called on the music industry and government to do something about it. At a parliamentary event on Monday, the campaign's leaders invited young people, not me, to debate the rights and wrongs of artists like Robin Thicke, Miley Cyrus and Rihanna. Our very own Helen Zaltzman went down to hear what happened. If there's a sound of 2013, it's not Robin Thicke's song Blurred Lines, it's the sound of people discussing Robin Thicke's song Blurred Lines and how its lyrics and video demean women, casting them as mere sexual ornaments. To be honest, if I hear much more about it, or the attention-grabbing acts of Miley Cyrus, or the very word twerking, I'll probably bash my head against the wall. But others have a rather more productive response. The Rewind and Reframe campaign is a collaboration between the End Violence Against Women Coalition, Imkan and Object. Through education and lobbying, they aim to challenge sexism and racism in music videos, and this week they discussed these issues in a panel in the House of Commons. But will their campaign work? Here are Rowena and Natalie from Rewind and Reframe. Um, I'm not going to lie, I've been 18 since about the age of 12, going to the internet, so no, age ratings, parental films and stuff haven't, or won't exactly work, but it is a step in the right direction. I think like a large part of this campaign is just challenging the culture of apathy surrounding these videos, and for me that is what filters and age ratings would be about. Are they likely to stop people viewing these videos? Probably not, but I think there are so many people saying like, oh come on, it's just a music video, who really cares, it doesn't really have an effect, and if the government can show a strong line on them and say, actually, these are harmful, they do affect the way we think about people and the way we treat people, then that would be really great. This is Carrie McCarthy, the Labour MP who hosted the debate and also founded Pop and Politics. You can't directly say this is because... Tyler, the creator, talks about rape in his songs or or that Robin Thicke parades around with naked women and says, I know you want it. But obviously it does have a cultural impact. The discussion, the debate is, you know, to what extent is, is it harmful? To what extent is it creating dodgy male attitudes towards women? Or female attitudes towards towards themselves. Yeah, Yeah, female attitudes towards themselves, exactly. Listen, watch, share. This is BBC Radio 1. Last night at the Houses of Parliament, there was actually a conversation about the kind of music videos that you make and the kind that Robin Thicke makes, Blurred Lines. They basically want to rape videos to address what they call undermining women. Um, How would that make you feel? I feel like I'm one of the biggest feminists, I mean, in the world because I tell women to not be scared of anything. Why? Because they're naked. I mean, those girls are beautiful. Any girl that wants to be naked. For me, it's not even that I'm a feminist. I'm for anybody. I'm for everybody, for anything. So where is the balance between allowing women to take their clothes off if they want and preventing this tide of people objectifying women. It's incredibly difficult. I mean, that's the whole debate with pornography, isn't it? You know, that not all women willing participates in pornography, but quite a lot of them will say that they are and that they enjoy making the films or having their picture taken. In the same way that you'd sort of say someone using racist language, there are very clear laws now that... If you do that, you will be deemed to have caused harm to somebody else and therefore your freedom of expression ought to be curbed so that you don't cause harm to somebody else. We don't have that with sexism. Here's Natalie again. I think focusing on Marley and Robin isn't exactly the way forward and as mentioned in today's uh, debate, there are a lot of other artists that do reflect all the negative aspects that we're talking about. Major Lazer and um, I think someone at some point mentioned T.I. and people like that. 
just any form of racism or sexual music videos is the focus. But I think Marley and Robin have represented so much in the mainstream media that they have become like the main focus point. Another frequently cited example is the video for Calvin Harris's single Drinking from the Bottle, which carries an explicit warning before you view it online. In it, actor Brad Dourif, wearing devil horns, goes around town seeking intoxicants and women. His adventures are intercut with footage of Tiny Temper performing fully clothed, but standing in front of a car covered in women, mostly black women, mostly on all fours, wearing very little and vibrating their buttocks, frequently doing so in such close-up shots that proctologists could use them for diagnosis. Whatever one's opinions of these displays, one can't really claim that they're vital to the video's narrative arc. But nor are they a surprising or new element in music videos. In some genres, they proliferated for several decades. And we can't pretend that sexual dancing was invented by Calvin Harris's video director or Miley Cyrus's video director or Robin Thicke's. So why is it suddenly such a hot topic of discussion? Artists such as Rihanna, for instance, have more than matched Miley Cyrus in the stakes of being underdressed and moving suggestively. But does it only become a matter for debate when done by white artists in mainstream pop genres? This is Aikamara Larisai of IMCOM, a black feminist organisation dedicated to addressing violence against women and girls, and one of the driving forces behind the Rewind and Reframe campaign. The conversations about Rihanna have been absolutely disgusting, and I'm not saying that she shouldn't take responsibility as someone who is in the public eye for her actions and the, the impact and potential impact of her actions, but I think the way that people discuss her behaviour versus other artists is quite interesting. For racism in particular, because it is not necessarily as overt, like with sexism, you can easily point to things like over-sexualisation and things like that, but there are also more nuanced things about sexism that people don't readily speak about, which are things like the position of the woman in the video, What do you mean by that? There's one video in particular. I think it's I Need Your Love, Calvin Mm -hmm. Harris featuring Ellie Golden. For, I suppose, what you would call the the real-time element of the video, she's mostly in the bedroom just waiting for Calvin. At the end, it infers that they're going to film themselves having sex. So whilst that video wasn't as graphic as the video for Drinking From The Bottle... Why is a woman just in the bedroom for most of the video? A similar thing can be said for racism. Like People don't necessarily pick up on how it presents because it's not always something that's hostile or it's not something that's considered to be a negative stereotype. But the fact that stereotypes are being used about the role of black and minority ethnic communities are... It's a problem. So in a purely practical uh, sense, how can you govern these videos, especially, say, a video made in America, hosted on a site that is based in America? How can British law do anything about that? Well, I think the age rating helps in terms of flagging up what the content of a video is so that the parents can police it to an extent. Might that prove an extra temptation, though, to a lot of kids, because contraband is... There, there is a, a chance that children will then seek out those sort of videos, but you could say that about pornography. You know, I mean, pornography is very clearly marked as something that's forbidden and they shouldn't be looking at. But and yet they're still getting it. Are, it seems yeah, in, in yeah. large so numbers. So that's, well, that's what I'm saying. I, th- I think the age rating thing 
helps as a bit of a marker. It may also help in terms of with some films, the makers will perhaps move a little bit of content because they want to bring it to a wider audience and they don't want it to get the the top top rating, they want the 15-year-olds to be able to see it or whatever. Um, You might Mm. also get the opposite effect. Or If if you're doing a horror film and it hasn't got a (laughs) top rating, then you're probably doing something wrong. You're not being scary enough. You know, exactly. That was Helen Zaltzman, and you can find out more about the campaign at rewindreframe.org. Well, it's time now to turn our attention to uh, news in brief, uh, but not too brief. And we start off, uh, Emily uh, and Steve, and indeed Rebecca, with, with three words to, to warm the heart. Digital radio switchover. This, this has been... See, I can tell Steve's up for this. My heart's... Always good to, make you, always make you, always good to hear your guests' hearts are sinking. My heart's sinking already. Come on, Steve, stick with it. I did say it was news in brief. Uh, but it's digital radio switchover. Government is due to announce uh, next month uh, what its plans are exactly for uh, if, uh, if the big national and regional stations are ever going to disappear off AM and FM and go on digital. But before that, 13 commercial radio groups representing 80 stations and 6 million listeners have come out and said, uh, no, we don't need switchover at all. Let's just have digital, have a bit of analogue, and uh, everybody's happy. What, what did you make of this, Steve? Well, I think that, you know, the point about switchover is it's not like TV. Uh, you haven't got enough people who've bought sets, and frankly, it's never going to happen until you get to that point. And so unless you want to do something really radical like putting BBC national stations only on DAB, I just think this is almost a non-starter in terms of we are still years away from the position where most of the radio sets in the country are DAB sets. Is digital radio big in the US, Emily? Well, not really. Uh, you haven't got DAB. Yeah, well, I mean, no, kind of satellite radio is pretty big here. And, you know, a lot of people listen to radio on the internet and things like that. But it's not, you know, we have a, it's a complete different sort of structure. Um, and all I can say is DAB switchover. That's been going on since I was about 10 and <laughs> now 150, as, exactly as Steve says. Unless somebody just does that thing where they go, we are switching off the signal. It's going to be another 150 years. OK, next up, big news at Newsnight where they unveiled their latest recruit, who was uh, ITV News business editor uh, Laura Koonsberg, who was, of course, BBC till a couple of years ago, and now she's going back to join the Newsnight Revolution. Uh, a good signing, Emily? Uh, yes, though it's playing twi- ha- havoc with her Twitter handle. She was BBC Laura, then she was ITV Laura, now she's going to have to be BBC Laura again. Um, so, no, she's a great signing, I think. I'm a big fan of hers. And also, at, at a sort of a, perhaps a less kind of visible level, they've signed Chris Cook from the Financial Times to be their uh, policy editor who is absolutely fantastic as well. So I think that they, you know, they're beginning to get, um, uh, they've got a new editor there, I believe. I, you know, I can't remember his name, um, but they're, do, they're doing, a, he's doing a really good job. I think these are, these are strong signings. And uh, Koonsberg will be chief correspondent, but she'll also be a presenter on Newsnight, uh, Steve, which, which spells the end for, uh, for Gavin Esler after 10 years. Well, I th- I'm really interested because I think Newsnight is fast becoming one of the sort of news stories or sort of news outlet stories of the year. When was the last time we were all talking about Newsnight so much in terms of the Russell Brand interview, uh, in terms of Kirsty Walk doing thriller dances, and now in terms of some of the signings that they're bringing to the show? Newsnight suddenly seems to me to be becoming relevant once more after many, many years of of kind of being a sort of uncle you should respect on the sidelines. 
Yeah, we sort of we did talk about it quite a lot last year, but that was probably not in a very good way after the Savile um, stories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> true. <laughs> That's the. Uh, I think it's it's a kind of it's having to. I mean, the, so the big question, sort of seriously, the big question for Newsnight is. I'm um, exactly as Steve says. It's becoming much more relevant. But it has to also be able to do, you know, the shade as well as the light. And that's always been the great strength of Newsnight, which is taking on the really big, serious, difficult stories and bringing kind of perspective and a depth to them that you simply don't get on other news outlets. And Channel 4 News has completely sort of stolen the clothes of Newsnight in the last couple of years on that front. Uh, And finally, in our little news and brief section, um, Steve, uh, Netflix uh, unveiled uh, some... uh uh, their latest program uh, commission after um, House of Cards, Orange is the New Black, et al. And, uh, oh, superheroes. This is just fascinating again because, it, you know, you just keep coming back to the quote, and I can't remember his name now, but the head of Netflix when he said, Ted you Soundless. know. Yeah, when he said, you know, what we're aiming to do is to, um, is to become um, uh, HBO before HBO become us. And, you know, you see that strategy here, uh, those blurring of the lines consistently. I mean, I, I, I'm still not convinced whether Netflix has a strong enough play yet in terms of original content. I know they're trying to get some headline things that will draw people to them, but I think they, a bit like the way we talked about uh, Sky and Drama or BT and Sport, you know, lots of lines being blurred, and this is obviously further evidence of that, but, you know, I'm sure it's going to be another fantastic piece of content because certainly House of Cards was. Yeah, these later series, I should say, they're, they're, I think they're four Marvel superhero series and then one uh, spin-off series as well. Yeah, certainly, uh, Rebecca, I mean, I look at Netflix and I look at kind of recent, you know, recent shows and it's still The Hobbit, Breaking Bad and Orange is the New Black, you know, so I'm still <laughs> kind of click refresh every 20 seconds or, you know, I give up after a while. But, but there are no new shows coming on, you know, it's still the kind of archive. That's true, but Orange is the New Black and House of Cards are both coming back next year. So they're investing. And I think Orange is the New Black was picked up before it had, for a second season before it had even shown the first season. So they are kind of investing in new drama in a long-term way. OK, OK. Well, uh, Emily, I know you're excited about this. It's time for the Media Monkey Quiz. Oh, hooray. First up, uh, which, uh, which department store unveiled its new Christmas ad this week? Anyone? John, John Lewis. Lewis. John Lewis. Well, I think given the, given the time delay, I think it's probably a draw, but I'm giving it to uh, Steve. Sorry, Emily. Uh, yeah. What do you think of it? Do we like it or was it at a load of balls? I haven't seen it. I know it oh. exists because of social media. You're in luck. <laughs> I love that Lily Allen's launched her new single in the same week, given that the John Lewis song is so tepid and, and lovely. Is and, it a keen uh, cover the, version? Yeah, a keen cover version. And then her proper single is the rudest thing you'll hear all year with a, with a similarly rude video. Can I just ask, what is the John Lewis song? Is it Azealia Banks and 212? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about now, am I? Steve, over to you. Is Res- it, rescue me. It's an, uh, isn't it an old Keen song? It's an old Keen song, isn't it? It's a cover of Somewhere um, in the Wind. It should be 212. Actually, in, in full seriousness, the, there's sort of two interesting things that, that come out from, from the John Lewis thing. First of all, in effect... Uh, a piece of content you know this is not really advertising when you look you know in what you would consider the old sense you don't even know it's John Lewis till the John Lewis name comes up at the end it's a beautiful animation that's been put together that definitely is there to sort of tug at the heartstrings and obviously a lot of press at the moment about everyone bringing out their Christmas ads and I would definitely point you as well towards what Sainsbury's have done because they are trailing this week on TV trailers for a film they have made by the guy who made A Day in the Life do you remember the uh, where everybody shot the same stuff in one day they got they got they asked lots of people to film Kevin McDonald. Yes, that's right. Kevin McDonald. They asked lots of people to film their Christmases last year. They've made a 50 minute film out of this and that's going to be available online to see. And again, it's just that further blurring, especially in terms of brands coming into the content space more and more and more. 
I was invited to a screening of the Marks and Spencer's Christmas advert. A screening for for an advert. <laughs> In a cinema. A In a cinema, yeah. I didn't go. Okay, question number two. It could be slightly more obscure. Which uh, Radio 5 live presenter escaped to grilling for making a, a joke about the licence fee? I knew it would be slightly more obscure. Richard Bacon. Richard Bacon. Uh, yes, Richard he, Bacon. I think he made a joke. <laughs> Thanks, Emily. You got it. It's that yeah. time delay again. I think you said that before I gave the answer. Now, I believe he made a joke about uh, if someone didn't like the show, he'd uh, give them their license fee money back. And then someone actually asked for the license fee money back. And then uh, when he didn't get it, to, or she didn't get it, took it all the way up to the BBC Trust. So in one sense, that's sort of tragic. But in another sense, how good it is that the Trust takes these complaints seriously. And next question, the final one this week. Uh, which uh, TV show, uh, marginally watched TV show on Sunday nights on ITV, is going to return for a fifth series? Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey. I mean, Ackerman, I, I, in like I, a bullet. I, I only know this because of Mrs. Ackerman. Oh Who's come on! Fan? Come on! So. No need to. No need to be ashamed. I was hoping it was going to be "Take Me Out." I've never seen Downton Abbey. It's very big here. Is it? Yes. Tell us about that, Emily. People, people in Brooklyn have watch parties for it. Do they know it's a period drama and not contemporary? No, I've I've have explained over and over again to people that actually, if you go, if you visit Britain, every everything in the south is exactly like Downton Abbey, and everything in the north is exactly like Game of Thrones. That's, that, that's how we... <laughs> I was going to say it's not it's not it's not that much a surprise. It's a big hit, is it? Because chucking a bit of fog, long dresses, and an English accent, you can sell it to the states every time. That's that. that do you know what, Steve? That's been my um, professional mantra. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that bombshell, thank you very much, Steve, Rebecca, and Emily. Emily and Steve have now left us, but very glad to say Rebecca is still with us, taking us to a TV lair. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. Now, I correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but you've been away. I've been on holiday. What have you been up to? You got a bit of a tan? Uh, no, I just stayed at home. Oh, really? In, in Stamford Hill. <laughs> it's just bad living, yeah? <laughs> so no tan at all. It Good. rained all week. So I watched a lot of telly, which is a bit of a busman's holiday, but I had a great time doing it. And what was you watching on the telly box? Well, the two things I watched, because I watched daytime TV for the first time oh, in a very long, since the, the dark days of freelancing, where I used Brain to rot. set my, my day's plan by after Homes Under the Hammer. I don't do that anymore. Because I've God. got an office to come to, a lair to come to, no less. Um, but I discovered that UK Gold, they've started rerunning Harry Hill's TV burp in a double bill. So I've been watching a lot of Harry Hill's TV burp from 2006, which it turns out hasn't aged at all. It doesn't matter that they're talking about soaps and Celebrity Big Brother from that era because it's still very funny. So that's been great, a rediscovery. And I've also been watching The Golden Girls a lot on TLC. The Golden Girls? The Golden Girls, which is so brilliant. And I hadn't realised how sharp the humour is and how risque the jokes are because it's on at lunchtime. From my memory, I used to watch it when I was a kid. Friday nights, 10pm. Yeah, but I never remembered the jokes being particularly rude. I mean, they probably went over my head, but every time I watch it, I can't believe how much they get away with. Blanche in particular. I used to love the Golden Girls as a 10-year-old boy. Did you? I was still a male back then. (laughs) But my parents didn't get it. I I thought this was the wrong way around. They should be the ones enjoying it, and I should be the ones watching... um, But they didn't like it. um, The Tube. Yeah. But... uh, (laughs) But no, Golden Girls, brilliant. So brilliant. great. And it, it's another thing that's just held up brilliantly. Uh, anyway, well, and good to see Burp still going strong. Yeah, we miss that on Saturday nights on ITV. I, yeah, I miss it. Terribly. Massive hole. Yeah. And, and you can watch TV now and just think, oh, I wish TV Burp was here to do that. I wonder if Harry Hill does that. I wonder if he watches Homeland. He says, oh, I could have used that for Burp <laughs> if only it was still on. 
Homeland. Homeland. That Homeland. actually wasn't meant to be a link to the next thing that we're talking about. It's just, going all right. I, I still just... like it in the sort of way that I'd still watch 24 if it was still going. I think this week's episode um, was actually quite good. I watched it on TV normally because I do the uh, episode recap for the website. Yes. I usually watch it a few days in advance. But as I was on holiday watching TV at home, the least glamorous holiday in the world, I ended up watching it live on television. I thought it was a very good episode. It was horrific when she got it in the neck, like literally so, not just being told off. I know, wasn't it? I didn't see that coming either. I was no. the Well, the first shooting at the door shocked me and then that was just it was brutal it reminded me of the fall actually when he um stabs the man in the back at the end and it's that same sort of gruesomeness that's too you don't often visceral. see very visceral stabbings and it, i thought it was horrific actually yeah really shocking and i'm glad that carrie was only pretending to be uh, mad because it's got a lot better now she's not having to do that anymore and the kid in the basket at the end gee heartbreaker yeah heartbreaker but I, I wonder if it looks like it due to the number of pregnancy tests in her drawer but is she going to be pregnant with Brody's baby yeah I tell you what that was a good instant of people who shouldn't use second screens yeah because I said oh my god when I saw that thinking my crikey there's some issues going on here yeah and my other half was like why what 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 was that yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm not telling you Get off Mail Online. Get off so she doesn't know. She's got no idea she's pregnant. No, really? Refused to tell That'll her. That'll be yeah. a, a shock I, for her next week. Am I a child? But that made the whole, ooh, I'm moving the baby into the cot thing more yeah. poignant. But all those pregnancy tests. There's a lot of them. Who's the dad? It must be Brody. Because if you think about how many there are, it must be Brody. Because that one that she went home with from the liquor store was fairly recent. And there's a lot of pregnancies. Or do you think it's the same baby? Maybe she's just... No, obviously <laughs> it's the same baby. Right, move on. Let's move on. Same pregnancy, I should say. Yeah. Anyway, good luck, Carrie. Good luck, Carrie, with that. <laughs> Saul will make a great godfather. <laughs> I forgot your present. No, I didn't. <laughs> Saul will just tell us what's going on. Oh, Peter Goodman's got me a gun. Brilliant. We should uh, get you to do an audio episode recap. Should we? Yeah, let's yeah, do that. Let's do that. So what else have you been watching this week, Rebecca? I've been watching MasterChef The Professionals, oh. which is my favourite MasterChef of all. I saw that for the very first time this week. And what did you make Ever. of it? Ever. I was totally sucked in. Yeah. I like Michelle Roux. I like Michelle Roux. I like that Greg Wallace is introduced at the start of every episode as diner Greg Wallace. <laughs> That's all he does. He just, I could do that. I eat. Lover of, <laughs> lover of sandwiches, Rebecca Nichols. So if they, yeah, they need someone, that was my audition tape. See, I didn't see the start, so I didn't realise he was on it. I missed the start. Now I've oh, gone off it again. Yeah. I don't like well, Greg no, he's, he's on a, the early part of the week as a diner. I mean, he just shouts about how much he loves puddings. It's the same as normal MasterChef. But it's less fussy than regular folk MasterChef. They haven't really tinkered with the format in any way. And there's something quite satisfying about seeing these professional chefs completely crumble in front of Monica, who is this sort of terrifyingly firm judge who skins a fish with like her little finger and then looks at them with disdain because they can't do the same. It's great. I love MasterChef The Professionals. Definitely the best MasterChef. And Sexy is back with uh, Michelle Roux, yeah, I think. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you, bit... do you find Michelle Roux sexy? I do. I think he's got the magic. He's got his voice. I will yeah. give you that. His I voice would like is to impress very him. soothing. Yeah. Uh, but I was a bit put off by the rabbit offal. Yeah. The dish with the rabbit offal was, it was too much. It was a hair. Yeah. yeah. Oh, hair offal. Yeah. Oh, it's not so bad, actually. Yeah, that's fine. And finishing this week was the Escape Artist on BBC One, but you didn't see that. Is, it, is that on your planner? It. Yeah, it is on my planner. Um, no spoilers, then. No spoilers. But I believe it's very good. Enjoyable nonsense. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I don't know if the plot would hold up in court. Right. Uh, being a legal drama, that is particularly uh, opposite. But well done, David Tennant, man of the moment. D- does Can David get Tennant any ever... I bet David Tennant never has a holiday in which he watches daytime TV and stays inside. 
No, I bet he doesn't, though. No. Yeah. He watches reruns of Doctor Who. <laughs> but he really should have a holiday because he's everywhere doing everything, even Shakespeare. And talking to Doctor Who, uh, yeah, Richard II, of course, yeah. the uh, RSC, yes. Well, more about Doctor Who this uh, next week, I'm guessing. Am I being presumptuous? Um, possibly the week after, in fact, because we can't see anything in advance, so oh. uh, we can talk about it the week after that. Well, Have reactions to it a yes. few days after it's been on. I look forward to that. Anyway, for now, Rebecca Nicholson, thank you very much. Thanks. My thanks to all these week's guests, who were, of course, Steve Ackerman, Emily Bell, and Rebecca Nicholson. And also to our roving reporter, Helen Zaltzman. You've been listening to Media Talk. Leave anything and everything on our Facebook wall. If you can find it, you're better than me. Or you can tweet me at JohnPlunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag-and-drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today, no credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN.